Now I'm going to move to a document that I wrote and put up on my website called The Extermination of the Canines. Because now I want to address the issue of how can an all-loving, merciful, forgiving God justify the wiping out of men, women, and children in these cities? This is probably one of the most difficult questions that Christians face in their own personal lives and when they're dealing with non-believers. Now, first of all, I want to say this. I'm not going to tie this up in a nice, neat little bow for you so that it feels emotionally warm and fuzzy. I can't. I can't. And here's the other thing. Nor should I. Because I want to tell you right now, there's a tension we have to maintain. I think sometimes we think when we're trying to explain why God did that, that means we have to be emotionally okay with it. And I don't think that's true. I think that you should forever feel very emotionally uneasy and really conflicted about a God who loves you so much he's willing to die on the cross, wiping out men and women and children. And here's why. Because I think God feels the exact same thing. If God loved us so much... And when, we, when you move through the Bible, we are horrible, evil people. And he keeps putting up with us and pursuing us. He watches us commit some of the most vile sins throughout human history on massive scales. And then he is willing to die on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that none shall perish, but all will have eternal life. And God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to say that God then turns around and says, I've got to kill these people. And that God who loves them way more than you would ever love anybody, let alone those kind of people, is saying, I'm willing to do this. So that emotional conflicting that you feel of how could God for these people that are important and are valuable and, and demand respect, but at the same time he did it, welcome to being in the image of God. So I'm not going to try to take emotionally that feeling away because that's to make us less than what God wants us to be. But at the same time, there are really good reasons and just reasons why he's doing this. And so let's break it down. The reality is this command comes from a very specific passage in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, it states that the Canaanites were to be handed over to Haram, destruction, or to be consecrated. The handing over reinforces the command that Israelites were to make no treaties, show no mercy, not intermarry with the Canaanites. And the second law, and so God basically says you are to kill all women, all children, all men, and you are to show no mercy, save no one, and it's all to be consecrated, haram, to me. And he goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 7, makes it very clear that because they have sinned against me and are under the destruction of God's wrath and judgment and so that they will not live in the land and lead you into immorality and sin and tempt you to worship other gods. That's the part a lot of people leave out. It's a part, the, oh God, take a command all the killing of the people. Yeah, but you forget the part of this because of their horrible evil sins and that they would not lead Israel into idolatry. The other passage that deals with war is chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, verse 10 through 18. 
And in that, God specifically says, when you deal with the other nations that surround you, you are not to initiate wars with them, go to war with them. You're not allowed to attack them. You're not allowed to invade them any kind of a way unless they first attack you. Then you can defend yourself and drive them out. And you may take some of their people as slaves if you kill their husbands and stuff. But other than that, that's it. Once they're driven out and you're safe and your borders are protected, you're not allowed to attack them. So God in Deuteronomy 7 and 20 makes a very clear distinction that there's about 10 nations within the Canaanite land, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hittites, that they are allowed to destroy, but he does not allow them to touch anybody else, anywhere else ever in the world, unless in self-defense, and only to the purpose of driving them away and not in a total wiping them out. And it's very clear for you to understand that this is not a massive command to all people. The land of Canaan is the Amalek, the land territory of Amalek. It's all of this gray, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, Canaanites, and Perizzites, and Philistia, and going up into Phoenicia. So it's everything between the Negev Desert, right at the bottom, the top of the Sinai Peninsula, going all the way up to above the Sea of Galilee, and then everything between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Now, yes, eventually God would give them the land east of the Jordan River going up the Euphrates, but never were they allowed to destroy anybody to do that. Now, David eventually is going to take all the land that you see on this map, but he's not going to take it by killing the Edomites and the Moabites and all them. He's just going to end up becoming their king and ruling over them. Now, yes, there's times that he does attack them when they attack him, but Deuteronomy allows for that. But there is never any of a going after men, women, and children, and mass extermination, that kind of stuff. So there we're talking about 10 very specific people. The Amalekites have already been somewhat defeated. Sihon and Og have been at least seven nations behind, left to be conquests. So what is the reason? What is the reason that God gave? First, you must understand this has nothing to do with race, religion, or land, economic, money, resources in any kind of way. All throughout human history, the only reason that anybody ever attacks somebody else is for racial differences, land, religions, resources. But that's not it. And the reason it's not race is because the Canaanites are the exact same race as the Israelites. Ethnically speaking, they're all Semitic people. Now, we often think of Semitic as Jews because we hear this anti-Semitism all the time and always refers to Jews. But you have to realize that everybody along the coast of the Mediterranean, going all the way up into Babylon and Assyria, the Tigris and Euphrates River, this whole entire region was called Syria, which is the whole coast of the Mediterranean, all the way up to what we know as modern-day Turkey, and then going over into Mesopotamia. All these people were the same ethnic people. They were all Semitic. They, were, they don't look any different from each other. In fact, the only people that look different are Philistia. The Philistia are a group of people who came over in a series of waves, but a massive amount of them came over in the 1200s, so a couple hundred years after Israel gets there, and they came from Greece. So you have to realize that everybody in this region are Semitic people, they look the same. They have the same ethnicity, the same kind of 
um, languages. They're all connected. They're all Ugaritic and Akkadian. They're all similar. Everybody will tell you, if you know Hebrew, you know Akkadian and all, I mean, just minor variations. They're all the same cultures, and they're all dark complected or middle tone skin, more of like a Middle Eastern kind of person. And the only people that looks different are the Philistines. They're the white people because they come from Greece. But they've been intermarrying, which means they're not even that anymore. So the reality is this can't be about race because this is like a bunch of Jewish people attacking a bunch of Jewish people. You can't call that racist. Now, it's wrong, but it's not racist. It's not about religion. Because this isn't about them punishing them for having a different religion. Because if it was about punishing them for having a different religion, they'd be wiping out the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and Babylonians and the Assyrians, but they're never allowed because everybody in the world was a different religion. So it can't be about let's just kill them because they're a different religion because that doesn't make sense. God is contradicting himself between chapter 7 and chapter 20 then. This isn't about land either. Because God never ever says it. He says, I will give you the land after the conquest. But God could have given them any land. All the world belongs to him. And we know even today, there's lots of lands that nobody lives in. Lots of lands that nobody lives in. So, yes, he is going to give them this land afterwards. But God could have given them any land that there was. And we know that they easily could have pushed the Canaanites south and easily lived in the north, and they would have never, ever touched each other because there's so few people and so much land. And so this isn't really about taking land, or they could have just divided off. And there are plenty of differences. I mean, he could have put them in the coastal plains and put all the Canaanites in the hill country, and that would have been a natural geographic barrier between them. Or he could have all kept them on the eastern side, and that the river would have been a barrier. So this isn't about land has nothing to do with any of that stuff that we normally have or that the Israelites are accused of. This is about one thing and one thing only, sin. Over and over and over again, when you read through the Bible, God makes it very clear, the sin of the Canaanites, the sin of the Canaanites, they're under the wrath of God, they're under judgment. This is about God punishing sin. And this is no different than God sending a flood to punish the people for sin, this is no different than sending people to hell for punishing a sin. And I'm not saying we're okay with those things, but we never really truly like debate those things and really have a hard trouble with them like we do with somehow the extermination. It's almost like we're totally okay with God sending like the Red Sea to kill people, a world flood to kill people, a plague to kill people. But the minute that God uses other humans, then that's when the shock value goes up. And you have to realize that the humans that God created are no different than the storm and the plagues that God created. For him, it's all his creation. And so all he's doing is he's using something different in creation to bring the judgment. And so this is about sin. Nowhere do you ever see this convert or die kind of a thing. Okay, now, you need to understand something. A lot of people compare this to Islam. The problem with Islam is when Muhammad came on the scene, he was born in 570 AD, and it was about 610 the angel came to him and gave him a message. And about 622, his message turned to violence, and he began to go out and exterminate everybody. By 632, he was dead, and he had conquered and exterminated everybody who did not convert in the Arabic world. Then his followers moved out into Africa and Asia and north um, of the Mediterranean Sea for the next several hundred years. 
And you have to realize that they were a brand new religion on the scene. Nobody knew anything about Islam. It was literally like 10 years old in a world that had no communications. And he came upon a people group, and he literally would come in, put the sword to their neck, and say, convert or die. I have no idea what Islam is, because you're only like five years old, 10 years old in your religion. There's no CNN telling me things, and no Wikipedia. And we didn't have a compared religion school in class. So I don't know anything about your religion. I don't know who your God is. I don't know who you are. And you're giving me one second to convert or I'll be killed. That, that's, that doesn't make sense. And it wasn't even about sin. It was just about convert or die. That's drastically different than what Yahweh is doing. This is about sin. Now, we know that these people do know who God is because they keep talking about over and over. Notice how many times in the book of Joshua is said, we know about your God. We've heard what he did. They're very aware. Even if you go back to the Canaanite religion, if you go to the earliest records of the Canaanite religion, they worship a God by the name of El, which is short for Elohim, which is the word given of our God. Now, Elohim can mean any God. But they worshipped a God that was all-powerful, all-loving, and was like a covenantal God. And then over time, their mythology begins to de-evolve, and El becomes this alcoholic, cowardly, immoral kind of a God, and he gets replaced by another God by the name of Baal, who leads him in these horrible sins. Which means at one time, the Canaanites were like the Israelites. They knew Yahweh. They had a covenant with him. They knew his moral law, and they began to turn away and walk away. And after a long period of time, they were under judgment. So we're not talking about people who are ignorant of Yahweh and his law and demands. We're talking about people who knew him at one time, fallen away, and they've been reminded of who he is as they've been watching Israel for the last 40-something years. And that's why they're under judgment for their sin and lack of repentance. Now, what are their sins? I'm not going to go into great detail because you can read it in my document. But here's the reality. Their sin was first and foremost idolatry. Now that's true of all the nations around them. But that is a big sin for God. That's a big sin for God is the idolatry. So technically that puts us all under the judgment of God. So, But what makes their idolatry is not only are they worshiping other gods, but remember these gods are nature gods. These are gods that are nature gods, and these gods are known by sex. And everything about them was sex. And the thing that really distinguished the Canaanites is, now a lot of cultures kind of did this, but the Canaanites did it way more than anybody else did. They actually had holy temple prostitutes, male and female. And you would go in, and you would literally have a sexual orgy or an individual sexual experience with them, and you would sleep with their priests slash pastors slash whatever you want to call them. And your hope is that you would sexually turn on the gods and they would be so turned on that they would then want to send rain and blessing upon your crops and your children. That was the goal. Now, you have to realize this isn't... When a bunch of people do that in America, most people say... That's wrong. Although that's beginning to change now. Most Americans now say that there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, most couples do that thing kind of stuff together. Not well. Most in that starting to rise up a lot. 
Here's the reality. If you go to the Canaanites, they didn't just do that. They called it righteousness. They literally used words like holy, prostitutes, righteous sex, righteous orgies, that kind of stuff to describe this stuff. They were so evil that they didn't even call it bad and feel any shame. It was glorious worship of the gods. Now, really, it's just about sexual pleasure, but you can become so twisted and so perverted that you actually call it something else. And then you have to understand that this also involved bestiality. And bestiality is a sleeping with animals, and it involved that. And you have to realize they did this in a religious sense. They would actually bring animals into the temple and sleep with them. And sometimes they would be sleeping with the animals and sacrifice them and kill them in the process of having a sexual act. And the blood would come over them in a baptism kind of a way to make the event even more holy. And women especially would do this. If a woman wanted her womb to be blessed by the gods, she would often have sex with a statue of a god first in order to bless her womb so that she could have children that were healthy or an animal. And there's scenes of them being tied to beds and that kind of stuff, why animals would come upon them. And this is described. You have to realize that the homosexual acts were big too. You have to realize it was so bad, they actually had a dream book where they wrote in the book that if you had a dream of having sex with somebody of the same sex, then that meant that the gods were going to bless you in this way. But if you had a dream of having sex with an animal, and then they list it. If it was a baboon, the gods were going to bless you this way. If it was a sheep, the gods were going to bless you this way. And they had all these different blessings that you would get if you had a dream of having a sex with different animals. Now, I don't know how sick and twisted you have to be to have a dream, let alone like that, let alone to say, that's awesome. This is the way they conducted themselves. And women, and you have to understand too, we live in a day and age where we have this idea that women and children are innocent. And that's not true. That's never been true. Look, some of the most horrible evil sins throughout human history have been done by women too. Bloody Mary, Queen Elizabeth, lots of people would go, women and children are not innocent. And then we know that a lot of children are committing heinous crimes at very young ages. Now we've heard stories where fathers have introduced children to pornography or drugs at very young ages. And kids by the age of six and seven are doing some really horrible things. And in that sense, you, you feel bad for them. But at the same time, at that young of an age, unless God does something miraculous, that is them for the rest of their life. Now you're talking about a culture where mom and dad, uncle, aunts, grandparents, cousins, everybody in the entire culture going to church is a sexual act with animals and humans and homosexual experiences. And you're a kid watching this and your parents are saying, that's awesome. This is righteous. This is how you love God and love other people. You're witnessing this stuff. This is what they would do as they participate in this stuff. You have to realize... This also involved incest and adultery. They encouraged incest. Incest was a big... And this is one thing that the Canaanites were different than other cultures. The other cultures didn't do things this extreme. And they were totally okay with incest and all that kind of stuff. And this is a big part of their culture. Not only that, they did child sacrifice. And they believed that the firstborn son of every family had to be sacrificed to the gods. Every son 
There was literally no such thing as a true firstborn son alive. The firstborn son was the second one. And every son, if you really love the gods, you had to offer your first fruits. And that include humans. And they would take the baby boy and they would kill it. And then they would put it in a fire. And a lot of times they would burn the kid in the fire or they would melt the kid in a glowing bowl that had flames under it. And they would do this as a style of sacrifice. If you were to build a home, you would just sacrifice the kid, put him in a stone box, and lay that as the foundation stone. If you didn't, the gods would not bless your home, and bad things could happen to you. And so, child, if you wanted to have victory in battle, you would take your daughter, who is a virgin, and sacrifice her like Jephthah will, when we get, or Japheth will when we get to, or Jepheth, yeah. Jepheth will when we get to the book of Judges. And so child sacrifice was a big part of their culture. Everybody did it. And if you didn't do it, the culture would force you to do it because nobody wants the gods to curse them. Everybody's doing this. And you have to realize that this is a massive... We have found so many skeletal remains burned of little babies in massive pits that have burn marks on their bones and teeth and stuff from just massive child sacrifice after child sacrifice after child sacrifice. These are horrible sins. Now, when you have an entire culture doing this, there is nobody who's good. Your kids are like this. And when we know how generational sins work, and usually the only way that a generational sin gets cut short is if that parent has a miraculous redemption and turnaround, or somebody else intervenes in the family and takes you under their wing and shows you a different way. But when you live in a culture where most people don't even travel more than 10 miles away from home, and within 30, 40 miles, everybody is doing this for generations, there's no getting out of it. There's no getting out of it. And so if you t- think about it, think about animals who are used to doing these kind of things with humans, and they've lost their fear. Think about children who are like this. And when they go into battle, women would fight with battle. They would go into war with the men and they would claw people and attack them. And sometimes even little children would go in at a young age and go after people's Achilles heels and that kind of stuff. When you have an entire culture that's like that and the animals are all like that, there's no way you're going to be safe. So you have to realize that this isn't just, this is about horrible sins. That yes, other cultures were kind of like that in idolatry and they had sexual morality and some things happened. But none of this massive, total decadence kind of a scale that we see. And nobody today, nobody, I don't care how liberal or how tolerant you are, wants to live in this culture. I remember like years ago, my wife Andrea was on Facebook with a guy left over, a friend from college that she went through with, and he was an atheist. And he was always bashing her and how could God do this and how could and that was one of the things how could God exterminate the canines and so a few months later he was reading an article about child sacrifices happening in Africa and he's a father himself and he said any parent who's willing to do that to their kids should be killed (laughs) you just spent the last two years arguing and bashing my wife for believing in God who killed people for child sacrifice And then you turn around a few months later and don't even make the connection. And as an extreme liberal who hates God has said, those people in Africa should be killed for doing that to their parents. Because when we, it's one thing to say, 
oh, they're sinners. They lie and they cheat and there's some corruption in government because that's what we think of as sin. Well, the world does. And how could God kill them? But when you really stand face to face with that kind of a culture, there's nobody who would want to raise their kids in that. And everybody would be horrified. I mean, think about how much people get horrified when you just don't like their political candidate. Okay, so the reality is this is the reason for that. This is their sin. And I'm not going to go any more detail than that, but I just wanted to at least give a, in some way, a little bit of a shock value so that we understand, not just for the sake of shocking, but for the sake of helping you understand this is a different world, a different kind of a people. And so there is nobody who is innocent. There is nobody who is innocent. Everybody participates. You must also understand that when it ultimately comes down to it, we want a God who hates evil. Nobody, nobody today in America, no matter how tolerant you are, are okay with murderers and rapists and terrorists going unpunished. Nobody does. In one sense, they're saying, how could you, God, kill these people? And the other sense, if he didn't, they would say, how could you, God, not bring justice? The two greatest complaints that people have is, if God is so loving, why does he send people to hell? And if God is all-powerful and all-loving, then why isn't he punishing evil? So you get mad that he's not punishing evil, but then when he turns around and punishes evil, you get mad. And I know it's a lot more extreme than that, and a lot more complicated than that, but really when it comes down to it, that's really what you, you just don't like that it's happening to you. And so deep down inside, we want a God who is horrified by sin and hates it and will deal with it. The other thing I would say to this is we have no idea what it's like to be a completely and absolute righteous, holy God who has no sin in him to look down on a world like this. It's easy for us as sinners wading in the filth of our sin and in a world of sin, and the greatest thing that we can say is at least I'm not doing that, which really doesn't amount to much, and say, how could you, God, punish sin? Then it is for us, when we are completely righteous without sin, I think our perspective on sin is going to change drastically. We don't know what it's like to be horrified by it. And if you can really, truly appreciate how horrified that God is at what you are and what you do, that's what Jesus meant by those who have been forgiven of much, love much. That's when you really begin to appreciate how much he really loves you. You need to understand that this is the, the, the issue here. Other cultures participate in this, but not to this extreme. You must also understand that God sent prophets warnings. For hundreds of years, he sent Abraham, and Abraham lived in a land and was a witness and testimony. And many people made treaties with Abraham because they put their faith in Abraham's God and came to him. And he sent the two spies into the land. He sent angels into Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent Melchizedek, was a righteous king and priest living in the land for a long period of time. And the implications, there was lots of people who were righteous, who came, became fewer and fewer and fewer over time, who were constantly in the land being a witness to everybody. So unlike the Islamic people, God was constantly sending prophet after prophet after prophet, giving warning to their sin and the destruction was coming because he loved them so much. He gave them every opportunity to repent. And then he gave them a warning in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
You know how bad Sodom and Gomorrah has to be when the other Canaanites are crying out about how evil Sodom and Gomorrah is. He sends warning after warning and a little mini example of what is yet to come. So this isn't a God who just came out of the middle of nowhere and said, I'm going to kill you for your sins. And they're like, what? They knew. Not only that, when we get to Genesis chapter 15, God says, I'm going to give you the land, Abraham. This also shows you this is not a land grab. I'm going to give you the land of the Canaanites, this land, but I cannot give it to you for another 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet ripe. The sin of the Amorites was about as bad as what I just explained. It was that bad at the time of Abraham. That's why God commanded him never to go into any of the cities. That's why Lot is really evil for going into the city. You have to realize that God looks at them doing all this stuff that I just explained to you, and God says they don't deserve to be completely wiped out yet. I have to give them 400 more years before I, as a just God, can truly kill them justly. Wow. That says a lot. You and I lose our patience with our kids and other people and neighbors and stuff like that. And we're ready to string people up or slap them or whatever you want to do to people. And God's looking at that sin on a massive scale being done by everybody and says, they don't deserve to be exterminated yet. But I know the future, and in 400 years they will. This is the same God who looks at the blood generation and says, everyone is only doing evil all the time. And God says, but I'm going to give you 120 years to repent before I bring the flood. That's the patience of God. That's the long-suffering of God. That's the loving God. So God looks at that sin that horrifies us, and we've been moving out of Canaan a long time ago, and says, they're not yet to the point where I can punish them this way. They'll have 400 more years, and in that time, I'm going to send prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to give them every chance to repent. And on the day that I show up on the doorstep, I'm going to send two spies in the land and give them another chance. That's the love and the patience of God. You also know that God's not playing favorites with the Israelites either because God promises to do the same thing to the Israelites if they went into the same sins. And so over and over again in Deuteronomy, he says, if you, Israel, commit the same sins the Canaanites did, and he lists a whole bunch of them, then I will do the same thing to you. And God was faithful to that. The minute that Achan committed his sin, God killed him. Even though he was circumcised in the Abrahamic covenant, baptized in the crossing of the Jordan River, and knew God and saw his glory and said yes to the covenant, God still punished him. And then eventually we're going to see the same thing happening to Israel during the time of the kings. And then ultimately, what is God going to do to Israel? He is going to bring another nation called the Assyrians in, and they're going to come into Israel, and they're going to do the same thing that Israel as a foreign nation did to the Canaanites here in this moment. If this is about God giving land to his favorite people and favoring them over everybody else, then why does he use a foreign nation to punish the Israelites in the same way that he used the Israelites as a foreign nation to punish the Canaanites? That's not favoritism. That's justice. And so you need to realize that he's not playing favorites here. 
And that's one of the things that Jews are going to ask. They're going to like, how can you send the Babylonians and the Syrians, an unrighteous people, to punish us, your chosen people? And God's answer is, in the book of Kings, the Israelites have become worse than the Canaanites. Now that says something. When I just explained to you what the Canaanites are like, and the Bible says the Israelites became worse than them. These are the chosen people of God who became worse than the Canaanites. And what made it even worse is they were even closer to the memory of who God was and what he was doing than the Canaanites were. And so you have to realize that this is really, truly just. And just in a way that we don't often think about as we're just dealing with the sinners being exterminated. There's way more going on there than all this stuff. Now, you have to, the other thing you realize is we go through Joshua... How much time has God spent on the battle so far? None. When we get to the AI, they defeated AI and kill everybody. When we get to all the other cities, by the time we get, we're only going to get really three battles. And after those three battles, God's going to go through every other city and say, defeated Hazor, defeated Jebusite city, Gibeon, defeat, 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 defeat. It lists it. That's it. That's all. If you read the Canaanite accounts of wars, the Egyptian account wars, and the Assyrians and Babylonians, they brag. They read their accounts, and you can go look it up on the internet and read the actual words of Sargon and and Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. And they talk about, they say, I went into the city and I massacred them all. I ripped open their pregnant women and dashed their babies to the ground. I cut off all their heads and I stacked them up in pyramids and I wore their skin and bodies like banners and carried them into war. And I did this, 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 this. And they go on and they revel it and they glory in it. Every nation did that. But when you come to God, he just says, defeat, defeat, defeat defeat because God loves them and yes he has to punish them but he doesn't revel in it he doesn't glorify in it and that's you don't find that anywhere in the ancient world like you do in the Bible just listing it just a matter of fact and so for God this is very factual now here's the other thing you must understand most of the time when the enemy would defeat the bad guys, or sorry, the, a nation would defeat the enemy, they would first dehumanize them and turn the monsters and their propaganda. This is what the Nazi party did. They made the Jews look like insects and monkeys and horrible, evil beasts that were just... In the, they actually drew posters like that. You can go to the Holocaust Museum and see the posters of Jews looking like animals and insects. And they talked about the horrible things that Jews were doing. They were eating their own children, all that kind of stuff. They de- dehumanized and made them into monsters to justify everybody getting on board with it. You don't do that in the Bible. God doesn't do that in the Bible. What does he do? He gives you a story about Rahab. He puts the story of Jericho, extermination, side by side with a very real woman, with very real emotions. And he shows you a story and says, look, she's a human. She's a human with a family that she cares about. She's a human with real emotions. And she's a human that wants to know God. At the same time, right next to it, God is exterminating all the other humans around her. And what God is showing you is he's not trying to turn them into monsters to justify this. He's punishing them because they didn't repent, and she did. 
But ultimately, in the end, these are still people with families. They are jacked up, immoral families. But they're still real people. And God forces you to live with the same tension that he does as God. He is an absolutely loving God that didn't want any one of them to perish. And even when his own people violated the law and made a treaty with her because he loved Rahab so much, he honored that and accepted her into the faith. And he made her look like a human. He portrayed her as a human, as a real, real person. Because he's trying to show you that this is his child, who he loves, who he's willing to die on the cross for. But at the same time, he's also a just God who has to punish sin. Because a God that doesn't punish sin is not truly a loving God. Parents who don't discipline their kids really aren't truly loving them. Leaders who do not punish evil don't really love you. And so a loving God does punish, but a loving God also cries and has his heart broken when this happens to them. And he shows you that when he puts them side by side. He shows you that when Jesus comes along and looks at Israel and says, Oh, how I long to save you. How I long to gather you into my arms like a mother bird gathers her young chicks in. But I'm going to destroy this city. And if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the things that you've seen, they would have repented a long time ago. And my heart breaks because of that. But I have to punish you. Because that's my character. And it's very hard. Think about even with your own children or, or um, disciples that you've had or people in your youth group or whatever. And you say things like, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And your kids are thinking, you're full of crap. <laughs> but you know what that's... It's not until you have a kid that you realize that. And, and there's so many times that I have gone lax on punishment because I just can't, I give in. I give in. And or I lessen their punishment. I'm like, okay, I, I'll give you all your time out earlier because I miss them. And we're, we're having these, playing these games and the one's over there in the corner and time out and, and I want her to be with us and so I shorten their time out and bring her back because I can't bear to be truly just to its full extreme. And we see the same thing with God. And so you have to realize this is a tension. This is a very real tension that we were never meant to reconcile. But it is the reality of life. And the reason this is so difficult is because of us. If we had never sinned, God would be just and merciful and there would be no tension. But we're the one that screwed it all up. We're the one that creates this tension. And then we turn away where we blame God for the tension. Now, I'm not trying to, like rebuke you or put you down if you felt that way and said things like that because we've all been there and that's a natural thing but I'm just trying to help you understand what's really going on when you say things like that or when other people say things like that and so yes this is complicated yes there's a lot of things I don't understand but the reality is this is the tension now in closing we also need to put this in the ultimate light of Jesus and the cross and here's the reality God hates sin, but he loves you so much that he exterminated his own son in your place. The reality is you have to realize to a certain extent, God is putting this. Here's the other thing. little side note. God puts this in the Bible and doesn't. He could have kept this out of the Bible if he really wanted to save face, but he put it in there. And he put it in there because he's letting you know that you are all Canaanites. 
And ultimately, in the end, this is what you deserve. But because he loves you so much, he exterminated his own son as the Canaanite in your place. And ultimately, in the end, we still are under the extermination, except Christ took the extermination for us. And you need to put that in the light of the cross as well. And so what does this mean for the church today? Well, the church has a historical past of saying, hey, the Jews are now the Canaanites. Let's go kill them for killing Jesus. Or the blacks are the Canaanites, so let's enslave them and exterminate them. We have a tendency of like interpreting the Bible as whoever we don't like is the Canaanites now. God has given us this command. No, 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 no. We're in a new covenant now. The law demanded that sin be punished with death. But Christ became the death penalty under the law for us. So there is no people group that you can apply this to. Now, the other thing you need to understand is, too, this wasn't even a general command for everybody. God commanded only a certain people at a certain time and a certain geography only. And once that geography was dealt with and those people at that time were dealt with, you weren't allowed to do it anymore. And the other thing, too, is when you get to the Gospels, God talks about the Canaanites, who were not all exterminated because they didn't obey, are going to be in the kingdom of God one day. What God is saying is this, is that we are in a new covenant. And nobody deserves to be exterminated like this because Christ has already been exterminated for them. Yet, at the same time, we're to apply the spiritual truth there and hate the sin as much as God hated that sin. And we are to commit an extermination, so to speak, in our own lives called sanctification, being transformed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And so the reality is, this is what we're to deal with. Now, Israel was not allowed to expand until they cleaned up their own backyard. And they weren't allowed to go into anybody else's backyard until they cleaned up their own. And the same thing is true for us. You're not allowed to go out and point out everybody else's sins until you're at least dealing with your own. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but you did at least be working on your own. And so we've been called through the cross to treat sin in the exact same way, but also love the person knowing that they've been freed from the condemnation if they place their faith in God. In the same way that Rahab's faith trumped the law, so our faith in Jesus and the people's world's faith today trumps the law. And yes, there are times where God still kills people like this because God's character hasn't changed even after Christ because Ananias and Sephora are killed by God in the book of Acts, even post-Jesus. But he's not commanded us to do that anymore. He's not commanded us to do that anymore. This is what we get from it. We read this, and we are reminded of God's love for us because we are Canaanites who deserve to be exterminated. But at the same time, we need to maintain a different tension in our life. And the tension is that you have been saved by grace. And nothing you can do will ever separate you from the love of God. And nothing you can ever do will ever unseal your salvation and the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, you need to hate that sin in your life. As Paul said, should we sin all the more so grace can abound? Heck no. And he uses a very strong term there. And as Christians, we tend 
to go in a very legalistic way where we hate sin so much that we fail to love and show grace to people. Or we go to the extreme where we're like, oh, we've been forgiven, we've been forgiven, and sanctification becomes very low on the list compared to justification. And you have to realize God doesn't go to either extreme. He takes the Israelites, who are incredibly evil people, and he gives them the same 700 years of grace and mercy before he punishes them that he gave the 400 years to the Canaanites, and probably even more than that. It's just by the time Abraham comes along, he says 400. That's patience. That's mercy, grace, Rahab under grace. Israel should be punished and they're forgiven. Moses, all these people. But at the same time, he is dealing with this. And you and I need to learn the spiritual lesson from this and say, how do we hold that same tension in our own life? And, and one way is, I had a teacher tell me once, write your sins on one side of a card and the good things that God has done in your life on the other side of the card. And every time you read a biblical passage, ask God what that passage is saying about both sides of the card. How is God going to use your gifts? And what is God saying about your sin? And we need to constantly remind ourselves of that because if we really, truly can hold this tension well, then we will always, always be doing everything in our power to be sanctified and truly become more and more like Christ. At the same time, we will really, truly begin to appreciate how much God loves us and our low self-esteem will go away. At the same time, we'll have incredible compassion for other people who are trapped in deep, dark sins and addictions, knowing how God truly feels about them because we ourselves are just like them. And so, yes, this is a difficult issue, but don't remove the tension. Embrace the tension and learn the lesson that God is taking from it. And ultimately, in the end, the only thing I can say is, yes, this is still a struggle for me to deal with, but God's overwhelming reputation track record is that he is a good and loving God. And there are a lot of things that don't make sense, but I've seen so much of him that allows me to trust in the things that don't make sense. Just like I don't know any of you or any of my family or my kids or my wife perfectly, but I've seen enough about them that I'm willing to trust them in the things that I don't understand. And they're flawed sinners, and I give them that much trust, let alone the divine, righteous God of the universe. I'm not trying to say this is so easy to deal with, but I'm not saying either that God is somehow wrong. And that's a difficult thing. Does that make sense?